I'm Sean Eckford, and this is Coast Reporter Radio, your audio companion to the Coast Reporter, newspaper of record for British Columbia's lower Sunshine Coast. We're on the eve of the final week of campaigning in the B.C. provincial election, and today we continue our feature interviews with the three candidates for Powell River Sunshine Coast. Green Kim Darwin is an entrepreneur and longtime member of the Green Party. She served on its provincial council and ran for the leadership this year. This is her second campaign for MLA. In 2017, she finished a close third with the best green result in the riding since 2005. Kim joined us via Zoom on the morning of October 16th, so our conversation does not reflect developments in the campaign since then. Joined this morning by Kim Darwin, Green candidate for MLA for Powell River Sunshine Coast. Editor John Gleason, uh, hopefully able to join us uh, a, a little later in progress. We're having what one has in the uh, the Zoom era, a little bit of network difficulty, but it, at least we've got Kim here, and that's the important part. So welcome, Kim. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to start out um, by picking up on... Uh, some things you were saying at, at a recent all candidates meeting and, and frankly, there are things we're hearing from, from other candidates, but in particular, members of the Green Party are not pleased to have to be out on the hustings running a campaign right now. Why not? Well, there was no reason to have this election. In fact, when Sonia Furstenau was uh, was elected as our leader a short time ago, one of the first things that she did was to reach out to John Horgan to give him uh, confidence that we were going to continue to abide by the confidence and supply agreement that was uh, entered into in 2017. And it had a fixed election date of October 17th, 2021. So there was no reason whatsoever to call this election except as a power grab uh, by the BCNDP. And we have seen how many of the, the ministers within the NDP who did not support that move, who couldn't you know, move, move through a campaign, and they chose not to run for the BCNDP. I thought that was very ethical of those uh, former ministers. The other thing that uh, you mentioned in particular at the Voice Lab event last night is that now that we're in this election, you see it as a chance to send a, a clear message to the old school politicians. What, what is that message? Well, that's, you know, the, the backroom boys that really, I think, uh, instigated this, this power grab. And we've seen over the last three and a half years, if we think back to pre-2017, the culture of the legislature with a majority government, where essentially the opposition could only just holler across the floor their, their uh, disapproval of different bills. This changed in 2017 with the, with the uh, three elected MLAs for the BC Greens and the Confidence and Supply Agreement. It was a far, it's a far more collaborative approach in the BC legislature. In fact, we've had legislation that all parties have agreed upon. 
And I remember when the confidence supply agreement was being uh, being signed, Andrew Reber said something to the effect of now all the parties can put their pieces into a bill. So the, the framework can be put out and then all the parties can put their pieces into the, the bills and the legislation forming a cooperative bill. And what that does is as we see, you know, the swings between the elected governments is that there's more stability that we're not going to see the other parties dismantling what the other party did and that is going to save us taxpayers a lot of money. So um, we're going to be joined in a moment now by uh, editor John Gleason but before he uh, jumps into the meeting I just want to throw one more sort of uh, question about the politics of this all uh, at you because the sort of other interpretation of why the Greens are not pleased to be in an election now is the party was in a position where you could have that influence and you could have that power. And it's highly unlikely, if I believe the pollsters, that you're going to be in that same sort of position at the end of this election. So is, is part of this that the, the Greens now face losing their one best shot at really influencing the, the government of BC? Well, the pollsters have been wrong before. And uh, I think in, in a one-week period, the BC Greens... We, we went from having zero MLA candidates to 74. That speaks volumes as to the support that the BC Greens have. We also have that track record, the three and a half years that we've had as a track record. In fact, in the last three and a half years, we've had what I believe to be the largest number of opposition party bills passed in the history of the BC legislature. So people can see what just three green MLAs can do. And uh, I think just imagine what we could do with more. There is a possibility that we could enter into a minority government agreement. Nobody thought it was going to happen in 2017, and it did. And we and now we've shown what can happen in that type of uh, that type of cooperative government model. Uh, John, hi. welcome. Yeah, hi, hi, Sean, and hi, Kim. Uh, sorry, I'm late here. Had some computer difficulties. Uh, just further to that, and I, I missed the beginning, so maybe Sean's already asked his question or something similar. But I just wonder, Kim. Uh, I think there was a pretty, pretty uh, unanimous. Uh, praise of, of your leader's performance in the debate. Do you think that was a game-changing moment for the Greens in this election? Well, that was her opportunity to introduce herself to British Columbians. As we know, we, we had uh, our former leader did a really good job of getting out there, sort of beyond our green bubble. So that was Sonia's uh, chance to do that, and she nailed it. She did so well. Um, you know, what you'll see from the Greens is we actually answer the questions. We don't sling mud. So I think she did an incredible job, and I think British Columbians were, were really impressed. And you think that will translate uh, on election day into more support for the Greens, enough so that in some key ridings that it could put you over the top? I believe so. In fact, uh, I think the the media, most of the media, you know, I, they said that she won the debate. And I think that really did translate from, from people that I spoke to, people who are not typically green. Are, were saying how well she did and how impressed they were and how pragmatic she was and how she came forward with solutions. People are tired of the old school politics. They just are. And that's what I believe is going to translate into more green seats. 
Okay. Um, yesterday, uh, uh, Nicholas Simons uh, suggested to us that the, the timing of the election call a year before it was necessary was not really an issue with the voters. Do you agree with that? No, that's their story. Um, I, I, I don't believe that narrative. I don't think British Columbians believe that narrative. I think they see it for what it is. And it is so undemocratic to call an election in the middle of one of the largest health crises that we have seen in a decade or more. It, it, people are worried about their physical health, their mental health, and their financial health to, to throw an election on top of it, to me, it's anti-democratic. So I want to move on to uh, talk about some specific local uh, issues. And you've raised one in um, discussions we've already had for stories we've been doing here at the paper that not many others are raising. And it's also a significant part of the platform. And, and that is concerns around forestry, both supporting the industry and protecting the resource. So you know, what is it that the Greens have in mind on forestry and how's that play out locally? Well, I was raised in a logging family here on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, my stepfather was uh, a boom man and then a, then a log scaler. Uh, my younger brother has a logging uh, company. And it's about the lack of sustainability of our forest industry. And it is my opinion and the Greens' opinion that we should not have a single log leave this province without at least one cut in it. And what we've seen is that 80% of the licenses go to five major uh, companies. In the old days, we used to have what we, you know, used to call JIPO outfits, which were small business owners that had logging companies that benefited our communities and where the communities actually had more of a say in where we're logging and, and in the employment opportunities. So it's sustainability. I also want to mention that the uh, the glyphosates, the glyphosate spraying in our forests is something that is just such a poor practice for biodiversity. I also um, hiked up to the the um, Dakota Bear Sanctuary about three weeks ago. Now that's an old growth forest in our backyard that has never been touched or destroyed by either human or natural um, uh, situations. To log that, apparently that by logging that, they'll get about $1.4 million of fiber out of there. When we look at the other opportunities, the value of forests is well beyond just the monetary fiber uh, value that, that we used to think of in the past. Now that we know about the carbon capture, the carbon sequestration uh, in the soils and in the trees, we have to think about it differently, the, the different values in, in this day and age with climate change. Just to come back to what you were talking about with the smaller logging companies, the, the two last major protest blockades in our Elphinstone uh, area, the companies involved were relatively small. One, one a local operation, another a, a, a small to mid-sized one out of Squamish. Those companies had to shell out a lot of money in legal costs to log a block that they had been legally auctioned by the government. So, I mean, what, what do we do? Is it, is it more regulation before the auction uh, or, you know, once an auction happens, do you have to support the local businesses who run that bid fair and square? 
No, we need we need a separate forest commissioner. Uh, in fact, our entire forest sector is, is really the decisions on where to log BC timber sales. It's it's broken. We do need to have somebody, uh, a, a commissioner who is going to set the annual allowable cut. And we need our communities to be able to have more of a say in where we want the logging to occur and where we don't. And that'll provide that stability to the industry to know, okay, here's the no-go zone, here's the go zone. And we see in other jurisdictions a different way of, of logging is similar to, to farming where you actually do rotation crop um, logging. So just across the border in, in Oregon, you can see that that's what they do. Now that is long-term planning. That is a way of uh, knowing that you're always going to have those areas to log. Uh, it takes, you know, it probably takes a bit to get that planned out. But if we do that with local, uh, with the local land use planning, that's something that I would like to see uh, for stability. And it'll, it'll reduce all of the blockades that we have that we've seen because the community will have already had a say in where we want these practices to occur. In, in the case of, of uh, the, the uh, cut blocks we're talking about, there's also a very pragmatic, uh, you could say capitalist argument for not logging them, and that is the recreation value, which far exceeds 1.4 million in the case of, of Dakota. And, yeah. uh, and the same applies to others. How, how come this argument isn't getting through uh, with, with uh, the BC government? You know what, that is a darn good question. And I think that there haven't been uh, enough voices advocating for that. But we have seen here on the Sunshine Coast, I mean, just on a, on a you know, Friday evening, be at the ferry terminal and see how many cycle cyclists are coming off of our ferry to enjoy the ecotourism to our backcountry. And you're absolutely correct. When I was told that the fiber for the Dakota Bear uh, Sanctuary was going to be $1.4 million. I was like, oh my good grief, we can make that up in a year just with ecotourism. It is, it's absolutely mind-boggling. So we, we know that we need forestry, but we also know that we need to protect our forests, uh, you know, as well for their biodiversity and for the Sunshine Coast, as we're looking at ways that we can continue our our economy, eco ecotourism is one of our greatest economic opportunities and we need to make sure that we capitalize on that as much as possible. Another area where the Greens have sort of staked out some different territory than the Liberals and the NDP is around the issue of long-term care. Both mm -hmm. the Liberals and the NDP have said they do see a role for the private for-profit operator so long as they're well regulated. You want it to be fully public and, and I'm wondering how does that work? You know, we've got a system that's a hybrid now. How do you dismantle that and move to fully public? Well, I don't think it was closing the private the the private facilities, but making sure. So we saw uh, during COVID nineteen, we all saw what was happening uh, in our in our seniors care facilities and the private operations. They did so much uh, worse than the than the public operations did. So it, you just can't really put a square peg in a round hole when you have a for-profit facility. That uh, the only way that they can make profits is by either not paying their staff well or cutting corners and not having the the service levels. In fact, I. 
I cannot remember the actual percentage of uh, for-profit facilities that have not made their, have not um, kept up with their service levels, but it's astronomical. So we need to make sure that our seniors are, I, I, I mean, the other thing is we, we keep talking about seniors' beds. What we're talking about is seniors' homes, where they're living. We have to take this, this um, innate thing out of it where we're just talking about pet beds and, you know, make sure that we are talking about our grandparents and, you know, eventually us, I'm sure. We also, most seniors want to, to stay at home. So we have to be able to provide opportunities for seniors to age in place as much as possible. But again, the for-profit model has shown that it is detrimental to our seniors. And uh, we also have a, a group on the coast that is advocating for co-op seniors care as well. So a hybrid model of not-for-profit and uh, co-op seniors care is, is something that, that we advocate for. Uh, Kim, uh, with, uh, with our writing, of course, we've got a, a, a seniors uh, project, uh, uh, for-profit private company uh, that is quite far down the line but hasn't started construction yet. What would you advocate uh, for, for the trellis project to happen? Going, would, you, would you be resigned to it going forward in, in the, as a current proposal and under the current contract, or would you try to derail that somehow? I would advocate for a not-for-profit. So I sat down with Mary McDougall in 2017 and I, I, I said to her, I said, you do know that our community is not in favor of a for-profit facility. So I point blank asked her if she would be willing to build a not-for-profit facility. And uh, her answer was that she wouldn't, uh, her shareholders would not uh, be in favor of that. So what, what would you propose uh, happen with that project right now? Well, I don't think that project has, has is even got a shovel in the ground. So I think uh, not going forward with it now is not going to be a detrimental to the community. Advocating for a for for a not for profit or a co op model, I think now's the time to do it before it's too late. We've been hearing about trellis for gosh, well, since 2016, and nothing's happened. Now, it, that could be because the community doesn't want it. So let's move forward with what the community wants, which is a not-for-profit model and the, this, the co-op model. So tomorrow, um, tomorrow afternoon, I have another, we have another all-candidate debate that is specifically on seniors' care. So this is where we have an opportunity to listen to our seniors, to listen to the people in our community about what they want. In your uh, business experience, uh, Kim, you were sort of uh, on the front lines of the situation around affordable housing here on the Sunshine Coast. You get, you get to see firsthand the struggle people have in, in trying to put together a down payment and a you know, a, a mortgage or a loan that works, et cetera. Um, so I'm curious as to what, based on those experiences, you think we can do here on, on the Sunshine Coast? Because it is a, a unique situation being a rural area. We can't throw up a 50-story condo building uh, to, to meet demand. 
Yep, you are absolutely correct. I uh, live, I have lived this uh, for 17 years as an independent mortgage broker, and especially uh, in 2015 and 16, when we saw our housing market just completely run away. Um, and the number of young people that uh, would sit across the desk that I'm sitting at right now, and I'd have to tell them that they could no longer, you know, afford to purchase a home in the community in which they were raised. As, as you know, a, a way of uh, finding a solution, I co-founded and I'm vice chair of the Workforce Affordable Housing Society. And our goal uh, there was to build affordable housing that is based on 30% of incomes. We've seen how detrimental that is when our young people, you know, have to move out of our community. That causes labor shortages. You ask any business owner what one of their, their most uh, difficult tasks are, and it's to to maintain staff. And a large portion of that is because we don't have enough young people. And that creates an unhealthy community. We need to have, uh, you know, a diverse range of ages in our community to make, make it function effectively. What about the, again, the question of the private sector? How do you incentivize someone to uh, build the sort of stock we need here, something that is uh, a rental for a worker or something that's an affordable first home for a young family starting out? Well, in the, the, between the 1950s and the 1970s, that's what Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation did. They, they incentivized um, the building and the construction of affordable homes. In fact, we see them, we see uh, throughout our own community, the, what we used to call the AHOP homes. And this is what Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation absolutely needs to do. So between 2014 and 2016, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation increased their fees three times in three years. And then the federal liberals started taking some of that money and putting it into general revenues. That was a very sort of silent thing that happened. That money, in my personal opinion, needs to go directly into building housing, affordable housing. And uh, I would love to put a lot of pressure on the government to do that. The private sector, yes, there, there, there are a number of developments, I think, in our own community that um, are going forward, uh, some in, in, in Gibsons, uh, th in thanks to our housing society there. And uh, there are some private ones, I think, that we keep hearing about, some upfield road that is also going to be affordable purchases. So we, we do need to ensure that there, there is a mix of those as well. Shifting back to the, uh, the campaign, Kim, um, in, in 2017, we noticed that there was, the, the NDP support was about 10% stronger up in the Powell River area rather than the lower coast. Is, are, are there any indications that you've been able to make inroads uh, for the Green Party up in, at that end of the riding? So I've been spending a fair bit of time up there and oh my goodness, it is night and day from what it was in 2017. I was, I was not known in 2017, but you, you don't win elections during the election year. You win elections by building relationships in between elections. So I've continued to go up to Powell River since 2017. I participated in their electric car festival. In their, they have a logger sports up there. Um, I, I went up to Earth Day. I've been up to yeah, a number of meetings there, their, their climate action, Powell River. So it, it is night and day. We did some sine waves 
up there and I would say 90% uh, thumbs up and waves and honks. It, it's been incredible to be quite honest with you. 90% is a good percentage. I know. Yeah, it's, it was, uh, you know, the volunteers up there, a lot of them worked uh, on the federal campaign as well. And they were just all smiles with, with how positive the response was. And uh, yeah, it, it's really, really hopeful. And one of the things also that is very different this year is a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people that work within unions. I mean, there's there's been this optics that the, you know, the NDP and the, and the union workers are tied together, but they've recognized that the BC Green Party were about people. We put people before profits. And uh, I, I'm getting huge support from a variety of people that work in various unions on the Sunshine coast. I, I can't let you go without bringing up BC ferries. It is the traditional issue we ask every candidate about. And, uh, you know, we've had some self-restraint for the last few minutes in not bringing it up. But again, uh, the Greens have staked out a very similar position as they had in 2017. And that is, we need to go right back to BC ferries origins as a crown corporation. Is that is that practical, though, right now where we are? Well, I think, you know what, it, Nothing else seems to have worked. Um, I, I stood, uh, I think it was in, was it in 2017, uh, down at Langdale when um, Pamela Goldsmith-Jones, our former MP, uh, announced the infrastructure funds for, for Langdale, and we haven't seen anything happen there either. But we, nothing else has really worked. I don't feel like the, the, that the coasters have been getting the service levels that we deserve. In fact, the BC Greens believe that the ferry system is our marine highway. We need to treat it as such. And having this quasi-private corporation uh, is just not working for us. So a return as a crown corporation, yes. But my caveat is that we need to have a regulatory body that has teeth. Yes, we have one now, but it's not effective. So we need to have a regulatory body similar to the BC Utility Commission that protects us, the, the riders, the residents, from price gouging and inefficient service levels. Okay, marine highway, land-based highway, because again, uh, you know, everyone is talking about the state of Highway 101. And, and last night during uh, the Voice Lab All Candidates meeting, you pitched a more active transportation model for what has to be done to fix that. So are, are, are we talking finding a way to get cars off Highway 101 instead of fixing Highway 101? Or what exactly is your vision there? Combination of the two. So here's, I'm, I'm a pretty pragmatic person uh, and uh, you'll find that I'm uh, really fiscally responsible. So we've had a hard time getting the infrastructure funds to fix our Sunshine Coast Highway. So if we take, there's only a limited amount of infrastructure funds. We know that. Those are our tax dollars that we're talking about spending. So if we now have two highways, how are we going to then make sure that we keep them both well-maintained? In, in my personal opinion, um, you know, people keep talking about the, the inland highway uh, on the Vancouver Island highway, and they're comparing it to us. Well, we have far less people. So the cost per person to put in this bypass, it just doesn't seem to me that it uh, is cost effective per person. And not only that, all of our homes are linked to the Sunshine Coast Highway. That's how we get to our shopping. That's how we get to our jobs, to our places of worship. So if we have this inland highway, 
how are we going to then have enough money to maintain the highway that we are connected to with our homes? So I fear that if we have two highways to maintain, there's just not going to be enough money. And I look for the long term here and uh, it just doesn't seem to me to be a practical solution fiscally. But what I would say is we do need to be really, really squeaky wheels and make sure that all of the, the, the studies that we've seen of all of the areas that our Sunshine Coast Highway needs, uh, you know, as far as repairs to make it safer, let's get those done. And I'll be a giant squeaky wheel about that. We are just about to uh, get into the last week uh, of the campaign. So I want to just close off by asking you what, what you plan uh, to focus on in in this last week, because you know, a, as a second time candidate, obviously your your goal must be to improve on the result you had in 2017. How do you do that? What do you do in this last week of campaigning? Well, we're going to finish up with a couple of all candidate forums. So the seniors one tomorrow, and then uh, the lower coast chambers have one on Monday. And then, you know, this has been so different uh, than, than 2017. We're not really doing the door knocking. Uh, it's just not, not practical. Um, <clears throat> so getting, getting out and about, I, I decided not to have an office this go round. But what I do have is this bright green tent that I have been popping up uh, throughout, you know, from, from one end of the coast to the other. So uh, look out for our pop-up tent. You'll see on Facebook, uh, on our events page, uh, where we're going to be throughout the next, uh, what is it, eight days, I think. And we're going to do sign waving as well. So sign waving is such a, you know, a great thing for, for not only for our volunteers, but um, it's, it's just a real positive way of, of being out and about in the community and putting smiles on people's face. It, it's, a, it's a fun thing to do. I was more curious about the issues you plan to focus on. Are, are we going to hear a lot from Kim Darwin this last week about the NDP caused an election we don't need to be in, send more Greens to Victoria, and we'll, I don't know, be in a coalition with maybe the other party? <laughs> oh, don't say the co coalition. The real difference, this is one of the things that, um, that we need to make clear. Uh, coalition and a minority government agreement are fundamentally two different things. And that did get quite messed up in 2017 uh, when the confidence and supply agreement was being signed because we weren't familiar with it. Uh, the confidence and supply agreement was based on a New Zealand model. And the difference is if we formed a coalition, I mean, technically, Andrew Weaver could have uh, been uh, a minister of environment uh, for crying out loud, and we would no longer have been sitting in opposition to the NDP. So just, you know, fundamental difference there. I will be coming forward with, I, I, you will hear me say it tomorrow, you will hear me say it on Monday, we are in an unnecessary pandemic election. There is no reason to be having this election, but now that we are, yes, let's get more green MLAs elected into the legislature so that we can form well-rounded, forward-thinking legislation. So in short, your goal, uh, opposite to what the current government's goal is, you want to see a minority government. Everyone else is fighting this, it seems, to achieve a majority of some sort. Only the NDP are fighting for a majority. That was their sole reason uh, for this election, is, is to get a majority so that they don't have to cooperate with anyone else. All right, John, over to you. Any last questions? 
I guess uh, the, the last thing I would ask you, a very, very uh, election uh, savvy type of question is, how are you going to get the vote out? Have you got anything set up? The NDP, as you know, are terrific at getting the vote out, and they set up quite, quite a network to do that. Uh, what have you done along those lines? Yeah, I've got my get out the vote team. Um, the The number of volunteers, we had so many volunteers this year that we really had a hard time placing them, but we've got our scrutineers and our runners who are, who I've already signed the document, uh, enabling them to go and, and get all of the, uh, all of the uh, sheets and whatnot. And we've got our callers on the phone to make sure that uh, people that might not have been able to get out uh, to vote to make sure that they do. One of the things that is very different though we used to offer rides to people right. to to the voting station and because of covid we simply cannot do that another reason why we shouldn't be having this election if that prevents some people from who weren't maybe able to get their mail-in ballots from voting again another reason why we shouldn't be in this election and it's anti-democratic well, that that's, that's a standard procedure for the parties yeah. is to have have vehicles uh, uh scooting people off to the the polls on election day and for some people as you know, it's very necessary. And if they haven't, uh, you know, got their mail-in ballots, those people won't be voting. Yeah. You think we're going to see a lower turnout here? Absolutely. I would be shocked if we don't. I mean, I do think that there's, uh, what did they say about uh, up to almost 800,000 mail-in ballots, but considering how many, how many voters we have, that's, you know, that's still not sufficient. And we know that we live in a predominantly retirement community here. And, uh, you know, for to expect our seniors to go stand in a lineup because they weren't able to navigate the, the mail-in ballot system, because it's new, um, you know, new to most people, that, again, that is just, um, it, it annoys me that uh, this has been done to British Columbians at a time when they're really feeling pretty raw and vulnerable and scared. I'm afraid that is where we're going to have to wrap up this morning, though. Thank you very much for joining us, Kim. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. Yeah. Thanks so much. That's it for our final Coast Reporter Radio interview with the candidates for Powell River Sunshine Coast. You can catch our earlier interviews with NDP incumbent Nicholas Simons and Liberal Sandra Stoddard Hansen in our podcast feeds or on the audio page at coastreporter.net. We've also got fresh election news online daily, including a special BC Votes 2020 section. Speaking of Nicholas Simons, he suffered an ankle injury during a roadside campaign rally on Thursday that required hospitalization. We wish him a speedy recovery and quick return to the campaign trail. I'm Sean Eckford. For editor John Gleason, reporter Sophie Woodruff, and the rest of the team here at The Coast Reporter, thanks for listening.